this is good. That's pretty good, man. Pretty minimal latency on it. It's good. Fuck yeah. So, uh, welcome to episode five of the Drinks with Jackson podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson, and today joining me is Jack Hawkins. How are you, champion? Howdy. <laughs> Mate, you're, you're a tough man to track down, I tell you what. I am. You and the ATO. <laughs> How you been? Um, I'm good at the moment. I mean, I'm still... Um, Still, still working like crazy, but uh, I'm all right. Like I've been in Shep for uh, about a week. I'm uh, back in my hometown for an interim period. Yeah. Before moving overseas, and um, that's good. So slower than, than normal, which is good. So yeah. see family and all that. Yeah. It's crazy to think someone like yourself come from here, but it also makes a lot of sense. Obviously, the work and that. So right. the first time I met you was eighteen months. Two years ago at the Maud Street Wildlife Tap House. Yeah, I reckon. With your brother James and Reese. Yep. So all of a sudden, you know, like I'm, I'm chatting to this guy mm. and he's got a bit of a artistic flair, <laughs> marketing hustle. That's a kind word for it. <laughs> and yeah, I thought as soon as I started the podcast, I'm like, look, we got to get Jackie Boy on, <laughs> providing that we can track him down. Very kind, yeah. Very kind. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I mean, I think uh, I'll probably look up to you and the amount of work ethic you've got, to be frank. So, nah, no way. What are you talking about? Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, yeah, just really before we get started, um, could you give a bit of a brief overview as to who the listeners are listening? My background. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. Okay. Cool. It's a bit of a how far back want to go type thing. Um. So I've been. Uh, pretty busy over the last 10 years and that's also morphed and changed into, into different things over that 10-year period. Um, so I started out as a commercial photographer and a videographer, director, if you want to put it, um, sort of like in the content boom of like nine years ago, I suppose. Uh, I was like very online, uh, very big on social, like when it came by, not for me, it was not the same as, but more figuring out how it worked and what this was going to be. Uh, and it was, you know, it was, I was already an advertising nerd, so that was like a big, exciting opportunity that I thought was happening at the time, and I got very lucky that it was happening at the time. Um, so I bet a lot on that and was very lucky to, I suppose, become quite a in-demand commercial shooter and uh, videographer for primarily liquor brands uh, pretty quickly, I suppose. Like, I still, it still took me two years to find my feet, but um, that was fine because the industry was moving slower than I was, so no big deal. Um, Rode that for a while. I think I took that to pretty much the height it can be. Like I shot some billboards and I shot a lot of just large, uh, large advertising campaign content for liquor brands for just about every uh, national or international like that I want to at different levels. I didn't get to shoot. Are there any names that you can share with us? Yeah, like anything under Diageo or Berno or Moon Grants. Like, so that's like Hendrix, John Walker, Tankery, all that kind of stuff. Um, I shot stuff at different levels for all of them and within their brands and the brand houses at different levels. So like, you know, I never got to shoot like a, a big Johnny Walker national campaign or anything and that, that still bumps me up. Um, but I shot like Asahi national campaigns and stuff and like, so, you know, all different levels or like I never shot like a Hendrix um, magazine piece, but I directed like, I think like their largest piece of video content for the year that I, that they did it that year, you know? And so all different levels, did that for a long time, um, got antsy, like did, did okay with cash on it, 
But, you know, I just felt a bit uh, boxed in, like, and I feel like I, it sounds very arrogant, but I feel like I sort of figured out a lot of it, and I was kind of like, you know, rocking up and hating it, which is a big privilege to have when you're, like, getting paid great gosh to make pictures um, at a high level where you get to control everything, dictate everything, and it's, like, very big privilege to be like, I'm fucking bored of this, you know, but especially at, like, wherever I was, 24, um, I think I was young, I would have been 20, 23, to be honest, um, at the max, but that's how I was feeling, and I was, like, you know, still booking big gigs and just, like, hating it, and also, like, I was, I knew I hated it too, but I was just, like, upping my prices to levels where, like, trying to get people to say no, and that just, like, makes it a vicious cycle, because people sure. start saying yes. And then like, fuck, now I've really got to perform here. Up the game. Yeah, and that was, like, that, that kept me in a point for longer than I would have if I hadn't done that because then things did get challenging. And when you're doing, like, a $50,000 billboard campaign with no staff and no, you know, uh, anything, like, I didn't have any infrastructure, just a kid in the bedroom, um, you know, that's, it starts to feel pretty real. Sometimes you start to feel like, fuck, oh, I, you know, I've taken this too far. Yep. But if they're, you know, but if they're approving shit, then... You know, they see something in it and they want you and there's a reason. So was that the switch from working for these big companies to becoming a consultant specifically? Yeah, so, yourself, so the way that leads into, um, I started to like, I was pretty down about it all and I was sort of like, it also sounds really kind of crazy, but I really thought the writing was on the wall for my career. And I think I was a bit, I think I was right, but I think I was playing that game way too early in my head. I think I've been writing that for 30 years, 40 years and been fine. But I really was like, damn, I think, like, CGI and 3D and I think, like, um, group, I think user-generated content is, like, going to, like, erase my job. And what I didn't realise at the time, which I just didn't know yet, was that that was right, but it's just going to take a really long time. And not because the, that the content is weak, but because the company's putting in a strategy of the week. And know, the like, content's weak. Like, the content it, is, it, it is quite It is quite saturated, too, like, yes. as far as the content creation and certainly. breaking away and actually putting something out there that's meaningful that people can take something away from. Absolutely, and absolutely, and that's yeah. why I use generate content is winning and will continue to win. But what I didn't realize then, because I hadn't been in a firm of any kind yet, was that like managers just need to please managers to be successful. You don't need to actually do meet work. the KPIs. Yeah, barely have to do that. You just gotta like get you the guy that signs your check and manages you to look good, and you do good, right? I actually had a great mentor early on called um, Dick Blanchard, who was Glenn Phoenix Global Ambassador, and he told me that I was Scotland with him when I was young, and he was like, mate. I can give you one advice, and I actually, I never used it unfortunately, but it was helpful to understand the guys I was selling to. He was like, "You just have to make me look good." He's like, "You think way too much about the impact on the consumer and where it's going to go, how it's going to work." He's like, "As long as I can get my boss to be like, Dick, you did fucking awesome," and then I make my boss look awesome. It's like he's like, "You have employed forever," and I didn't even know that because I was just like hustling from day one, freelancing from like the second I moved out of Shepparton, uh, so essentially like nineteen, eighteen. So I just didn't know that right until some bloke who'd been in firms for his whole life was like you don't know how this works like it's just failing up all the way and that really helped me with, with pitching um, moving forward but anyway so from shooting all that I got bored and I was like oh, I think I, I started to get this idea in my head that I wanted to go to California and do my MBA because I felt a bit like I was around all these things and I was touching a lot of stuff but I was like I don't know like I'm definitely I'm not the smartest guy in the room like there's no doubt <laughs> um, what is I felt that way and I think I probably had a bit of a complex about I'm from Chef, I'm a high school dropout, and, like, I had to, like, you know, work in a factory, so my job shop to move to Melbourne, and, like, I really felt like I, I fucking hustled my way here, you know? And that, I think, it gave me a complex once you, you know, working for all these marketing managers and whatever, and brand directors and, and ambassadors, and it's, like, I started to be like, fuck, I don't know shit, I don't know 
in the design and how a salary works. I don't know what any of this stuff is about. So I'm like, okay, I think I want to like, look, I don't want to feel this way. So I think I want to like take my little bit of gush and maybe try to like do an MBA. I was just learning what an MBA was. Um, and very fortunately in that same period, I had like one last geek come to my door. That was months of chat, which was uh, the founder of Starwood and me had uh, collided through uh, somebody else called Hannah Bambra. There are a lot of names out there that no one, no one will ever care about, but they, they've basically been watching me, I suppose. But, yeah. um, Hannah had connected me and David, the founder of Starwood Whiskey, because David had a big, he had this big, grand, crazy idea about a documentary he wanted to make. I think I'm okay to talk about it. It never ended up getting made, but there's months of talking about it and how we're going to do it, mapping it out, and we're going to self-distribute this, take it to different festivals. It was like really revolutionary, and it really got me excited. And I, I decided in that moment, like, fuck it, you know what? I want to. This is this is the reason I'll stay because I wanted to, I wanted to film bigger stuff, um, but I didn't know how. I just couldn't figure it out in Australia, in Melbourne, like because there isn't really an industry outside of commercial different levels. But I wanted to like try to get into more narrative stuff. And this came along, I was like, oh my God, this is the dream opportunity if he risks it all for me because someone's going to pay me to make a doco piece over two years. And David was really supportive in all my concepts and built me up in a lot of ways in that process because I was, at that time, I was anti, still am, anti like traditional cinema distribution and how it works, especially in Australia and anti um, any Australian film funding and all that stuff. And I was really getting excited about maybe you can self-distribute and like do really well and have control of the content. And this is like, I guess, coming off a lot of the ideas at the time that were in, on the internet around like what Lucy K had just done with this content early on, like owning this content, self-hosting and self-distributing. You're finding that a lot now with the uh, comedians. They're posting yeah. a lot more of their stuff on YouTube mm-hmm. as, you know, Netflix, their uh, criteria is getting quite tight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So through obviously YouTube, their own websites, paying a subscription that's mm-hmm. only live for four months. Like yeah. It, it's, yeah, I uh, see like Andrew Schultz did it and a bunch of other guys, right? And yeah. It's a good bet to make. It's like basic startup math too. Like if you're already building a brand, you've got traction. It's so dearest to just go make it on a sensible budget. And if it crushes it, you get all the cash and someone will buy it again for the rice. And if it fails, as long as you weren't silly with how you put it together, it's like, it'd be fine. Tom Segura. um, Yeah. Not so much his specials that are on Netflix, but his podcast with his wife, Mm. uh, Chrissy P, who's also a, uh, you know, a a grade bloody comedian they've got your mum's house Mm -hmm. uh and they do the pay-per-views obviously because a lot of the shit they have Mm -hmm. is quite sensitized but if if you if it's a pay-per-view you can put whatever the hell you want on it so no they do great i love all this it's going against the grain and pushing that envelope and Mm -hmm. you know that's innovation within itself really i think it's just also like it's hard but smart business and all of these tangers i think probably do view themselves as small businesses in a way and you know, you want control over distribution. Distribution is like a huge part of success. So um, we can come back. I'd love to talk about just that actually later on because I've got hard on for distribution, boards of distribution. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we worked through this project. It didn't end up coming to fruition because of a lot of reasons. It was really ambitious. We never ended up breaking ground on it. But me and David had met and, um, you know, in a really strange thing, we just like, I guess, discovered that we really enjoyed each other's company and we thought very similarly and got along, I don't think, we weren't like best mates, but we definitely, I think, realized that, oh, you're the same kind of psycho that I am, but we're just like 20 something years apart. And I think I really needed that at that time, because I'd been solo, hustling the whole time as a young guy, and like, I just didn't have anybody to 
set me on any sort of, I didn't have any, I remember like, I just didn't have anybody to talk to about anything like how to do something, how do I get somewhere? Even like wanting to do my MBA, I was so frustrated for months. Something now that would take me not even 30 minutes to figure out. I just couldn't figure out, I was like, how do I even apply? What do I, what, how do I find, like, what is an MBA? What is the course of curriculum? I don't know, what do I learn? What do I, can I do? I just didn't know anything, right? I didn't have anybody to be like, all right, I'll fucking tell you, you know, met David who had done all of that. And, um, and then like a couple months, that fell apart and then me and him didn't chat for a bit. We, you know, email back and forth a little bit, you know, some ideas and then an opportunity came up, uh, where he could bring me into the business, um, to sort of take hold and build the, the whole social media side of the business. Um, and also to take take on, uh, direct consumer efforts, which at this time was like really, it's, it's really, it's, I feel it's crazy to even discuss it because I, I'm young, it's really been such a small period of time from then to now, but talking about direct consumer, especially food and drinks, direct consumer at that period, I literally didn't know anyone. I could, there's nobody I chat, could chat to. I didn't, no one was doing it. Or pe- well, people might have been doing it, but they were far away or it was like Coles were trying to figure it out at a high level. And like, it was really new and super, super fucking difficult. And David threw me a real opportunity of like, you can pretty much go, go on this journey of study and whatever. Or it's like, come work here and learn. You know? Like an apprenticeship, really. A really well-paid apprenticeship. Like, yeah. he didn't fuck me over. It was like, pay you right and, like, work hard, do the job, don't fail. Like, and uh, and it was a lot. Like, I worked day and night and, it was like, I really did still do respect David and the whole company and we tried to, like, make magic. And we did make magic. And not just me, the whole team in all different, every area the business touched and still touches. It's a pretty special company. Um a special product that's like deserved it deserves all the success that it's achieved because of everyone's effort and it's been like it has been like real real effort i was blessed to be like 23 24 and be able to like work all day and work all night and like just not burn out right and have like a insatiable thirst for like learning that's that hunger though like you're finally doing something that you actually want you've left shepherd and you've left the factory like you, mm. you're doing something that you enjoy mm. the payoffs there mm. which i didn't even know what the payoff was i just i just felt like i didn't want to stagnate and i was like i want to just keep learning at a high level and like figuring stuff out and like i didn't even know what words to be into really like i understood booze really well especially from a media perspective um and like but not from a creation perspective yet, but I definitely from a media perspective and from like how you sell a perspective, I think, um, to a pretty good degree from my exposure at the time. But I didn't know, like, like I didn't know that uh, Boost Startups, like, like, which is like my whole life now, I didn't know what that really was at that time. But very quickly, David pulled me directly under his wing and I just got to see everything and learn everything and touch everything. And I was just very, very, very blessed to be in a position where the harder I worked, the more I got truly rewarded with what I wanted, which was knowledge. I didn't even know you could get a pay raise. Uh, <laughs> but, like, I just wanted knowledge and access, you know, and I got given that. And um, to cap off the long-winded, who am I? I was there for years. Um, the business went through a really big leap that we were all part of, and a part of that leap was David moved to the States to help drive growth in America for the brand. And the business were really big here as well. Like part of that effort was like a lot of hiring, a lot of changing of what we were. And with that, I, you know, with the mentorship of David, decided to step out and like go be on my own again. 
and that was really daunting, but it was the best thing I could have done. Um, because it was like, yeah, I've gone and learned all this stuff, and it's like, what's the point? I, I was too young to just stick around, I could have stuck around as you know, but it was like, I need to go out there and just keep, keep moving, even though I'm in a really safe nest, paid well, access knowledge is all locked up, probably in like the most celebrated Australian whiskey company ever, maybe only debatable against like Sullivan's Cove or something. When it came out, it depends how you want to measure success. Um, but went back out, started uh, consulting more and trying to build my own uh, like a startup. And then there's a whole other chapter that I think is still going to be ended. But from, from that period to now, has just been um, helping others build their like a startups, attempting to build a couple of mine. Um, and, and then also like keeping my feet in the media space as well, because I keep trying to quit, but it's seemingly impossible, uh, <laughs> you know, but that's sort of who I am. So I'd say like the best way to describe me with all that in mind is that I do a lot of work in innovation, uh, liquor and premium product startups, um, consulting on like strategy and like brand build, brand approach, brand approach and sort of like how to build a successful scaling so good and it sort of makes sense too like after interviewing your brother uh you're both psychos in a in a way like you're both very hungry pushing the envelope uh james spoke about uh when i asked him the question uh how did wildlife come about in an roundabout way he really just mentioned you know the opportunities missed through you two obviously you wrote a screenplay you've uh, delved into the 360 cameras with the GoPros very early on. Really, you know. Yeah, I shot the first 360 music video in, in Australia. Yeah, who, who was the muse though? He couldn't. It was a friend of mine, uh, still a good friend, Ryan. At that time, his artist name was R, I believe it was uh, RY, and now he, he goes under Ryland Rose or just Ryland maybe. But um, yeah, I shot like a lot of his covers for a long time, and uh, he was another like supportive early friend and client who like wanted something and, and I could just bring him a crazy idea. He's like, you figure it out and I'll give you like $700. <laughs> Can you figure that out? And then, yeah, we do it. So it's a hustle, but we shot this music video, this music video, because I'd seen the tech bubbling away and found a way to hack it together and called my brother, lend the hand. And it's one of those things, I was too young and I was like, I, didn't, I don't know anybody. I don't know how to do this shit. I was like, call my brother, which has been... A staple of my life is a, uh, you know, if, if I'm fucked, call my brother. <laughs> um, especially on shit that I cannot figure out. Like I might be able to figure out a spreadsheet, but uh, I'm like, how am I in the fridge? I don't fucking know. You know, <laughs> James can help me. For yeah. sure. Um, but yeah, I think we're made of the same cloth for sure. No doubt. And as is our little brother, I should mention too. Harry. Harry is the character. He is, yeah. The old banker boy. Um, so. Your recollection, how, how did wildlife become what it is today, like yeah. early stages? I think me and James have slightly different memories of how it came together, but I think that's because we were probably both working through an idea independently and then came together on it. Um, in my mind, I had, um, for sure, I'd just been to London for the first time with David to take me over to me. Uh, start incubator and do some work there and like educate them on social media growth and stuff and when I was there David every day was like really challenging me on like what are you going to do like you know you're doing great and everything but like what are you going to do like do you want to start a thing do you want something together do you want how are you going to how are you going to make whiskey better than what it is here like it was just like constantly challenging me in a great way 
and I had got my gears turning, and um, I I decided to get uh, access to like data, I suppose, like market data reports and stuff. Um, like the analytical stuff? Yeah, stuff is like from MarketWash and IBIS. And then there's a couple of like fancier ones like Future Lab, which is like, a, it's like 14 grand to get a fucking report. It's crazy. Um, but luckily I wasn't able to pay for it, but I was able to get access through like just meeting people in the, in Starwood and through other firms attached to Starwood. I started to like, you know, network for the first time and be cheeky and people were swapping stuff and nothing confidential. People were swapping like, you know, reports, uh, like publicly purchasable reports. And, um, you know, I remember I was already thinking about beer because I'd, it's going to sound really roundabout, but I thought about like, I was working for a startup in the city and a lot, all our growth was in the city. And I, I felt like a disconnect on like, oh, you know, like if I come home, and I was still coming home a fair bit at that time on trains in my family, like I couldn't get stuff that I was working on. And so I was, like, I was a part of this whole big world and it didn't even exist here. And that felt shit. And, but I learned why it didn't exist. And I remember I brought it up with people in the company, like, well, you know, and you start to learn about distribution of how it works and the importance of it and how the hierarchies and all this, and, and the difficulty of, of why distribution. Um, but that made me think, like, well, why can't you investigate and, like, build something just for an area, right? Like, why do we have to do this big, difficult, scaled, you know, UK, United States, Australia, big dick everywhere? Like, why can't we do something smaller, do a ride. So I was just teaching myself, I guess, like the beginnings of like how to set something up completely end to end. And so I like pulled population data on Shep and then I like looked at categories, like, all right, he's doing well. And I was like, all right, cool. And figuring out that, oh, there's like, no one is making any, there's no options. It's just macro beer in regional areas and macro beer is consumed massively in regional areas and there's no better option. And I just started to make for the first time question that like, why can't you make a better lager or a better ale and like, you know, do all right as long as you can be price competitive. And then you suddenly ask them about population and all this stuff. And, and then he's talked to James a lot about it. And I think he'd always like, he was, he was a big macro beer consumer and he definitely had an interest in homebrewing, but never like gotten, I think like serious about it. Um, so I'm pretty sure the way it kicked off was a lot of phone calls talking about at length and probably me blue skying a lot of stuff and dreaming a lot. And I'm pretty sure one night together on Google, we just found a kit. Like a, uh, grain grandfather. Kit. Yeah, grandfather, I think it's called. Grandfather, grandfather. Yeah, grandfather. And I just bought it for him and had it sent to his house. And said, and I bought him a couple of fancy textbooks, a couple hundred dollars, like beer textbooks. And he's like, oh, like, you know. Have at it. Have at it. And yeah. I was really passionate about, at the time, um, I felt really privileged to be in a place that I, like, loved what I was doing. I felt like a part of something. And my brothers um, weren't startups. And not, and not that you have to be to feel rewarded either. But I just, at that time, really felt like I wish my older brother, especially because I was very close to him at that time, um, I was like, I wish that he could share some of these feelings that I get to have. Like when I kick a goal, I kick a goal for the, and I'm like right next to it. It's not like I'm kicking a goal and like West Farms just gets the money and I don't fucking know anything about it. It's like, you know. So I really wanted to help foster that with him. And um, yeah, got lucky that he picked up, he got the only kid in the race and I think they just like smashed out and studied hard and brewed up a hell of a lot. And um, I think that started turning into like a dream. So 
I think that's that's my recollection. It's a pretty sweet dream too, by the way. I think so too. I'm really proud of what we've done, and I should say I'm, I'm more proud of what they, those boys have done. And um, yeah, it is, and I still think that the mission that we had early on and still have, uh, I think we're still really true to it, and that's probably something I'm the most proud of. Like, there's a lot of ways to build quicker and more aggressively, and we don't do that. It's like it doesn't alienate individuals, and it's the beer is just approachable, and we try to be affordable and uh, meet people where they're at, and just you know slowly bring everybody up. So that's so good. Yeah, I mean, that's nasty from you because you're the console mate, not the guy. So. Oh, I'm not the guy. You are the guy, mate. I just love beer, really. Yeah. Like, oh, and there's the no way compliment yeah. the guy that's like, I love beer. <laughs> Pass us that bottle opener, mate. This. What what are we drinking? Deeds Brewing. Um, uh, I think it's a I think it's a co-ferment sour. So what we got? It's a barrel aged mixed culture ale uh, called the Plutocracy. It's a long run current. Like it's growing. You're on. I'm on. Jackson's move. It's four point five percent ABV, seven fifty ml, so large format. And uh, I believe it's on French oak for uh, twelve months. It says. And then it's, I believe, also been infused with a stone fruit, which I had never heard of, to be frank, until the other week, called a, a Pluto or a... I thought that was, like, French for chicken. Yarra Valley Pluto, uh, Pluot, Pluots. Pluots. Yeah, sure. Yeah, they work for chicken French. Is Second one on the list is Extravagance Barrel Age Mixed Culture Ale with Blueberries. Uh, French oak for 12 months. Yeah. I'm a big fan of anything on oak. Um, can't get rid of me. 6.3 ABV this one. Love it. Absolutely delicious. Yeah, Oakley Traction is, um, I mean, I feel like a sucker. It's like that'd be more cliche coming from whiskey and spirits to like even when I drink beer, I want to be on wood. But um, I just addicted to stuff. I remember like, the fir- I actually remember the first beer I had that like changed my life with it, which is like I was close to leaving solid. And somehow I had, somehow I interacted with a bottle of, um, of, uh, oh, what is it? What is it that I called? Uh, Flanders Ale out of, uh, North Europe. Um, it's an art German name. I've got a bloody wine second here called Vatican. That is called, uh, Hellas? No, 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 no. It is, um, oh, it'll come to me. I just blanked on it. It's great. It, it was, like, I think it was 2016 World's Best Beer. I think that's how I came across it. And uh, Flanders Ale, open air fermented in these big wooden bats. And I think they uh, there a bit of fruit in there too. That's, uh, I can't believe it. it's like Reichbach or something like that. Uh, Rodenbach. Rodenbach is the name, I believe. Yeah. And that, uh, I just never tasted it. Rodenbach vintage. Yeah. Yeah. This beer changed my fucking mind. It just, I remember I drank it on the way to the Starwood, uh, like a, in a magnum too, gee whiz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's seven, seven hundred. It's changed a little bit now. Red, red Isle. Yeah. That's it. When I first bought it, um, it's all changed now. Like I think they had, they won a bunch of big awards. It's an old company, but I think they won a bunch of really big awards at a pivotal time in craft beer. And like back then, I think you could only buy these 700 mil couple of year vintages. And then now they, now they've got cans and they're like, essentially like table wine. They're like a year old. Like, you know, it still tastes delicious. Kind of interesting way now because now you can sort of taste the product, I guess, across the horizon, time horizon. But um, yeah, just had huge oak influence that, to this day. I still love. This one's a little bit more acidic, but it's it? still still quite nice. That that one that we started on mm. has the same sort of resemblance as a like a lemon lime bitters. 
Absolutely. Like a Bundaberg lemon lime bitters. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you can really draw a resemblance from that, I think. I think it makes sense with like, it's so citric, especially in acidity. It's, it's really still manic. balanced though at the same. I find it balanced. But as I said, I think a lot of people would hate that beer. And that's like, it's a good point with wildlife because like that's the kind of beer we don't make. We don't make anything um, like on it. We do, we do just throw them on the regular, this kind of stuff. But I love this kind of beer personally. But it's not a democratic beer for being like real about it. And that's no shade on Deeds or anybody like Lusterman or anybody like that who makes, you know, these are really sort of funky, you know, anything you can say is all oh, on super sour type category. Like, but it's not democratic, you know what I mean? And it's not a working class beer. Not that you have to be, but that's something that wildlife definitely. It's amazing that you say, like, as far as a working class beer, um, I went to Chaz Cole, obviously, to pick these up and a few others uh, yeah. to review. And the people lingering down the craft aisle. Lingering is a good word for it. Um, and, you know, actually discussing beers and, you know, what they like and what they don't like. And, oh, mm-hmm. have you tried this one? And That's awesome. It's really, like, it's there's a, a community starting to oh that's so good to hear like i think we feel it as a business but it's good to hear from just like anybody that's seen it you know in a bottle shop because i mean you would remember you're you're a local like three years ago four years ago oh people turn their nose up at anything that's outside of a carton dry uh you know the most most crafty beer in town yeah or dude still be like oh (laughs) it's gross yeah i mean but look fat I can't push out of that yet because that opened. It's all, you know. Opened your eyes cool. to it all, yeah, I guess. But it opens doors for everybody. Like, it's it, change doesn't happen quickly, culturally, or even with products. Like, it is an iterative process. And you always, Segway is the best example, right? Segway rips in the markets, it's big from zero to 100, fails. But then, what, 10 years later, there's a lot of boards. It's the same tech, small down, made cheaper, way less pressure, way less wanky. It's like, cultures adopted this idea slowly and it's like that's how things happen you know it's it's not quick and fast it's nearly yeah. impossible to do that way that's true unless you've got fidget spinners and then that's just like you make a gazillion dollars every month well this is probably going to be a good segue but before i really get into it i just need yeah. we're going to smash these bottles out so i just yeah. need a photo for the uh socials yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so give us a bloody cheers, cheers. Three, two, one. yeah we love it good work champion <laughs> so Obviously, you work in uh, product innovation, brand innovation, uh, value-centric, and the old biz scaling, which I had to uh, Google that term. Oh, so, blitz scaling. Yeah. Reid Hoffman was the founder of it, like LinkedIn, he started. Uh, I think Apparently, he, he coined product. the term. Yeah, he might have. I don't know who coined it, but I wouldn't be surprised. He's yeah. pretty prominent. Well, that's what Google said. Yeah. Um, and it, it pretty much sort of labels the likes of Facebook, Uber, Pinterest, just that high trajectory growth, like that yeah. Uber growth that people try to yeah. to um, aim for when they start a business. Now, yeah. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. So with like the luxury brands aspect, yeah. So I, Actually, what, no, please yeah, you go. No, no, no please keep the question. Yeah. yeah, when I when I think of like a luxury brand, I look at like a reputation or the business's goodwill Mm -hmm. i find it hard to really understand how a new business can become luxury from the get-go especially especially like in this uh day and age uh where 
it's just full of misleading information, drop shipping, things yes. look expensive, but yeah. they're tacky. Like, yeah. how do you differentiate yeah. one from the other? It's a great question, and it's uh, it's a, it's something that is kind of mind. Like, especially in the last two years, uh, I'm deeper and deeper into luxury products as a broader category, and the philosophy of building them. Um, one question, I think it's good to answer your question with a question that I get regularly from clients which is like what is luxury like define what is a luxury product? yeah and that's say, are we a luxury that, that probably ties in with the whole value centric which is essentially you know communicating and supporting uh that overarching story that appeals to a consumer's ethics and values like oh guys well, there's two things there like for me which is that like i don't think that luxury, i i think traditionally and even currently luxury brands and brand houses don't actually deliver on traditional value, but it's that's a getting quite in the weeds on like what is value on a product. So I think let's come back to that and take a step back to like defining what a luxury product is, and then we can get into whether they deliver value or not. So like the the consensus that I go by, and I think it's probably generally accepted academically. If you go like read any super nerd papers that like LVMH have funded, like what is luxury and what luxury strategy. It's usually down to like status, like quality is the smallest piece. It's like four things. Like quality is the smallest piece of it. Status is one of the largest pieces. Inaccessibility or, or accessibility is another huge part of it, right? And then there's like infamy or, or price or whatever. Okay, we want to put that right. Um, so like if you look at those four pillars, they're not really valued. Like quality would be the only thing that's particularly drive straight to quality. Uh, but it's a trade value, but it's not really that present if you go buy an lv bag or anything like that or even if you go buy like a, a tiffany watch or a, even if you bought like a patek watch like something really expensive like a ten thousand dollar watch right or a richard Mille or something like that you know something that's like 15 25 35 grand even those aren't really craft products there's like about four levels above them of yeah. real craft products i had a marketing uh lecturer that said that something along the lines of 60% of LV's uh, income is generated through small goods, the oh, likes more, of... More, 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 more. Uh, Huge. Uh, it's massive. Belts like, and, and wallets and... Even key tags. Key chains. Le- leather and belts is like the general term and small accessories, perfume as well. These, like, that has lined the pockets of, of uh, LVMH and all luxury houses for the last 15 years. And, and Bernard Arnold, who is the... Chairman of Mitchell, he directly invented that strategy. Like, and it's a that's a whole other chat, like whether he's good or bad. Generally considered that he's bad. But luxury doesn't exist in the format that it does today without him. But also luxury would never have been cheapened without him. Sure. So like it would have been more inaccessible. Um but yeah, that's a whole I talk about that after like, Do you think yeah, okay. So, like, to, to, to finish the question first, pros before I waffle on too much. Um, that's what I think luxury is, and I think the biggest part is probably actually inaccessibility and clout is the biggest thing. So, how do you start? Your first question was, like, how do you just exist as one, right? In the era of dropshipping and all this stuff, and there's no, there's no traceability. Um, yeah, it's it's with, with no reputation either. Reputation? Like, as, as a new luxury brand, mm-hmm. it'd be very hard. The to most make. effective strategies in the last couple of years, and I think they are the best strategies, are aggressive... Um, community building but like that community has to have genuine respective foundations um the other part of it is still like 
uh, you can still do clout, but clout has changed a little bit. Like I think clout in luxury used to be very much about uh, more so price and inaccessibility. And I think now clout has become more localized into areas. And like a great example brand for people to Google in the last couple of years is like Amy uh, Leondor out of New York is like a new clothing brand. It's luxury, shit ain't cheap. Um, it's not it's not super luxury, but like jacket's gonna cost you two grand, jumper's gonna cost you a hundred bucks, right? And it's essentially just like all rough or any ripoffs for a new age for like my my demo. And they just popped up, you know what I mean? But they they were in Brooklyn and they had a really cool place that had a lot of status, all the cool people hung out the, there. The, the culture. Yeah, in the culture, right? And that's how you do it. And that's also how even the big boys do it. Like, even brands like Amy Leondor, any, I would say, like, it's a wild word, but like luxury startups, they are aiming, a lot of them, to sell to someone like Bernard at LVMH. And Bernard is looking for someone like that. Like, if someone can outpace him, he's like, fuck yeah, I'll buy it. I shit. So that their luxury startups have the same sort of emphasis as any is in that there's an exit strategy of a buyer. Yeah, I think for a lot of them, but I, I would say that I think in a lot of new luxury businesses, there's probably less of a tilt to buyout mentality, only because a lot of those businesses do start in an individual being obsessed with their craft, and that can run for a long time. Um, there are the other examples which is like is a brand called uh, Mischief, I believe, out of New York. They did like, you might have seen like the little Nas X shoe that had his blood in it. And they did, they did like a lot of these like wild product drops that are really expensive and really unique and crazy. So it's a whole different kind of luxury brand that hasn't existed before. Um, you know, there's no like regular releases and like in a seasonal catalog and there's no runways. It's just like crazy partnerships with celebrities with insane products, right? At a high price and then resell for like five, six, ten times again, right? Um, people would just be capitalizing off that opportunity they try to, within but, its own. But Mischief controls it heavily. Like, gotcha. there's a drop on a certain time. It's democratic. If it gets in, you can purchase one only. Yeah, gotcha. Capped. The reason I bring them up, though, is they're, from what I understand, completely venture-backed. So that's an example of like a new luxury company that definitely either wants a buyout or wants a very big shareholder return because they've got a bunch of shareholders. Whereas I think someone like Emily Nador, I don't know their structure exactly corporate wise but uh, I haven't read that they're they're uh, filled up yet with venture capital money yet but but they will have something someone will have 20% of them like it's just impossible to build something successful in the space and not have someone knock on your door do people uh, then criticise or critique heavily those brands once they have been bought out similar to craft beer I think when they're bought out yes I think buyouts affect most um most, most craft consumer goods buyouts have a negative effect on sentiment, consumer sentiment. But the really crappy math on it is like how many consumers even find out that you got bought out. I bet you there's a lot of consumers that don't even know the bulk is bought out or whatever. Like they just... Stone of wood. Anyone like Because yeah. they, they, they don't care. They don't eat care. They drink because they like it. The beer's done good by them. It's at that macro audience though that are slowly starting the transition, yeah. not the not the cult like following that may only be that thirty yeah. percent of the market. Yeah, gotcha. but then on other sides of things like Power and Life, I love your perspective on it. Like, I feel like that was a really audible um, reaction from consumers when that buyout happened. It's no different to Four Pines. Or Four Pines, right? Yeah, I feel like that was felt pretty heavily in the culture, right? Like people weren't happy about it. Um, so, you know, it can go either way. In, in, in this space, in more of this beyond liquid space, um, 
I'd say like the sentiment is probably less negative on the overall. But in some things like skincare, there's a lot of big bias amongst your skincare, and the sentiment is really negative almost always. Um, because I think it's closer to a product like beer. It's a very personal product. You drink it, but you couldn't beer anybody. It feels personal and special in this connection. And I think it will make you care more, uh, more than a sweater or a pair of shoes. And I think skincare is very similar. It's part of your daily ritual. It's a lot of happy memories connected to it for people. So there's a big buyout and the product gets cheapened or there's a threat of it being cheapened. That's strange, that outlook. Like I'm personally, mm. I, I look for, you know, a scrub and a mm. daily sort of mm-hmm. face wash, obviously in the factory. So, mm-hmm. you know, something that cleanses my face, mm. I guess. You're happy. I'm, I'm happy, but at the same time, you get a good product and if it's a good then, product. Then, then you can't find it or, yeah. you know, like it, yeah. so many challenges or, you know, irritates your skin. But yeah, yeah, I think guys have their bloody ritual, but it's tenfold for women. women. Yeah, it's it's a bigger ritual for women mostly. Like male skincare is growing. It's like one of the like most exciting spaces to invest in. It's just huge growth. But yeah, to this to this present, um, you know, women uh, are much larger in the market. So yeah, it's more personal. As I think, uh, not to generalize, but beer is probably still heavily skewed into a larger male audience than a, than a female audience. And similar thing when there's a big uproar, still plenty of women mad about certain bias, whatever, absolutely. But generally, there's a couple more beers in the audience and beer bellies, um, you know, <laughs> a couple of big boys. But um, yeah, it's a, well, bias are funny. A funny thing to discuss like it, it's a it's personal and brands are very personal and a good brand should be personal and if a buyer to somebody i think they would in their right but i think it's also worth knowing that it doesn't always destroy a brand i would say more times than not it doesn't destroy the brand um but it just depends also how you value the brand some people only value the brand because it's independent yeah you know others like whiskey is a great example if a whiskey company gets bought out uh, by a large, like a DHO or a Perno or any of these, like the biggest liquor companies in the world, make getting bought out only helps that company because now they have like the funds and the ability to like actually make a lot of whiskey that will never run out. It can be a little bit cheaper, it can be available everywhere in the world. Would you argue the infrastructure for the likes of a distillery mm. is far bigger than a <gasps> yeah. brewery? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah, if you want to go broke, you just need to build a distillery. Were we talking about it before the podcast in relation to... Um, no, I think you just mentioned that you want to touch on the differences. The, yeah, but their buyout of uh, that Texan distillery, uh, the whiskey distiller Balcons, Balcons back yeah. in November and yeah. uh, Don Papa. Don Papa's the one I'm a little bit more familiar with. Yeah, yeah. in the Philippines, which... Is that settled? Uh, there's no, I don't think there's any hard financial info, but the way these deals usually work is it's usually like three and three is how things are usually structured gotcha and it's big money like it's yeah i think there's was uh i don't want to say the number i it pretty sure had it started with a b i think it was might even yeah i don't want to say the first number but it was a big number big acquisition um but just in case you needed i'll say we had technical difficulties we did and just in case we do pick up the slightly long spot we're back what we were discussing was uh, Diageo just uh, bought Don Papa and I believe you just asked about like how these things work, whether they've been all picked up and finished. And I think I was just explaining that they most of these deals work in like a 3-3 or 4-4 four, four type deal. Falls pretty long, but it's usually like, hey, here's a bunch of money. We agree on some, 
the most money, and then uh, in a couple of years' time, if you hit some certain targets, you get the rest of the money, plus it could be more. Uh, or it also could be like, oh, you missed those targets, you get a little bit less. So let's say, oh, I, I buy Jackson's wine company, uh, I'm going to give you um, $200 million, $100 million up front, and then in three years' time, you're going to hit these case targets, you're going to show me the brand continues to grow after I you know, kind of just be like, hey, I got here, and it's like, close the fucking door, I don't give a shit. It's like, you know, you keep growing over three years, prove that you're good and you put our money to work, put our team, it's all good. And then it's just like, yeah, oh, you get the right, yeah, I'm off the rest of it, the other 100 million. Or you could also be like, if I smash those targets, you know. I want a bonus. I want a bit more, yeah. So how does, this is probably a good follow-up in relation to that. So we've just come out of unforeseen circumstances with COVID. Mm. Is there some... The hottest acquisition time, it's been in years. Really? Yes. Yeah, just... Not just shouldn't just stick to the actual. All the a lot of the large FMCG companies are on a buying spree. Um, corporate profits are super high, like super high, right? Um, like you know we're in a pretty nasty financial environment, and the word the R words around a lot, recession, recession. Um, but corporate profits are not in the dog shit. Like they're they're good. Like so, what do you do if you are faced with uh, sort of adversity as a company? You got to keep the cash in the bank. You invest in innovation and, and diversify your success, right? It's like that way you either catch you either catch a bargain on someone who's been putting the hard work in now they're sweating because they they are like a small business and they're having trouble. You buy that for a bargain and turn it right up and saves you a hundred million dollars on innovating yourself. Um, or it's like what if your uh, flagship brands like Johnny Walker or Guinness is down? Those are actually both up massively, but if they were down, this is a great time to once again go buy a competitor that's got great craft growth at a bargain, right? Uh, versus you taking the risk in a recession of uh, putting together like a competitive concept, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It's, um, we, we spoke about it with James uh, Ballistic. Obviously, mm. they've gone into admin, mm. um, administration just to I don't know, review their checks and balances. Hopefully, it's not so bad. But do you mm. think because a lot of people have identified that uh, – there's a lot of big players looking to acquire craft breweries. The market's slowly becoming saturated in a sense, like as from like a micro, yeah, from a um, micro. Position. It depends on the product. So yeah. So like, you know, my, my time is a lot uh, more in spirits currently, and that's a different chat in spirits right now. Um, we're not even near. There's only one category that's approaching saturation, which is craft gin, and everyone's got an opinion on it. But I still think there's like I think we're on the trailing end of the boom, but it's going to be a long trail and a lot of bias on the way down. Because gin's fairly simple, isn't it? It's just wash juniper berries. It can be. Uh, it can be simple. It can be complicated. Yeah. It's like how long you want this string to be, right? It could be whatever you want. It could be. It could be a, just a cordial gin. It could be. You've worked with some of the best in the gin in the gin space. Touched a couple, yeah. Touched a couple. Taste a couple of them. <laughs> Lingering. Popped a few corks. Hey. Um, yeah, but it can be complicated. It can be simple. You can knock up a gin in a couple of days. You knock up a gin in a couple of months. Like it just, it's it's uh, it's a it's a very liberating product. It's fairly regulated. Um, there's a lot of a lot of different subcategories like. You can, yeah, you can do a lot. You can do it really bloody quick and you'll stay forever. So that's unlike whiskey where it's a lot stricter. Um, but the other type of spirit acquisitions is high and I don't think we need saturation on most categories. 
in perspective. Beer is different, um, but I wouldn't say it's saturation. Like, it, this is where, this is a, it's cool to talk about the scaling and scaling in general. Like, what is saturation? We're talking like, in which market are we measuring? It just, it, it really frustrates me when you go to a brewery, mm. they call themselves a brewery, mm. but they spend 80% of the time on the food and 20% of the time on a beer. Yeah, and the brew pub model in the last few years has, like, really gone crazy. Like, and I didn't see it roaring back, to be honest, but it definitely, uh, in, in multiple, in the UK here, in multiple states here, I've exposed a couple of clients in different states, and, like, the brew pub model is just, like, the way right now for cash. But it is the least scalable model, obviously, and you're not building a beer brand. You're building a very profitable restaurant. Especially in, like, tourist areas. Like oh, bright Aubrey, crushing it, right? Melbourne, like Melbourne, Brisbane, anywhere. Like anywhere there's a body of water. Yeah. If you've just got some cheap food that'll keep the kids happy, you know, it's like, and you feed mum and dad, and it's like, God, you're laughing, right? But you're really not building that. That's a great effort. It takes a lot of people to do, make a lot of money, not for sure. But you're not. None of that is really building a, a bigger equity for the beer. Uh, you might get lucky, and those people that come get that food fall in love with that beer. But unless you're doing all the rest of the work, which works in distribution, building branded market, building brand on other people's trade points, then like you won't, you won't get very far. Like literally, you won't get very far. Like distance-wise, with your brand. Um, but for some people, that's fine. Some people, that's like you know, some people that's a dream for them to run a really profitable group pub. Um, everyone's different. Like I'm obviously from a background where I. Uh, I was raised in like a division of scaling brands and I don't think every brand should scale either but it's something that I respect and look up to and I understand how difficult it is and um, if any small brand is having a really good attempt at that I just like ultimately respect it in a massive way. If you were to do consulting work or you know for a brew pub mm. as to you know we'd like to take this to the next level right what would you become um, like what more widely available outside of your own point well like the first thing which sounds dumb is you just do have to focus on uh, sales trade sales right like the, the way to build like the brands it's kind of the way to build any brand really is to like gain authority through distribution partners right that's like it sounds maybe complicated but it's not it's like jackson makes a wine and uh, how do we, how do, why are people going to trust Jackson's wine? They don't fucking know who you are. They don't give a shit. You can put on the bottle like I'm the best wine maker, the best dirt, best grapes. No, I don't wine. Well, I fucking know who you are. I don't believe you. You know what I mean? But maybe I believe the place I drink every Thursday night. And maybe I really like Ted who serves me the bar there. And I think he's a cool guy. I don't know, he pours drinks all night. And so I respect him. You, you value his opinion far. Yeah. So if you walk in there one day and Ted's talking about it, Ted's pouring it. Or whatever you know, Ted's wine bar. You start to get a little bit of credibility, and then you just want to repeat that over and over again. And that's really hard work, to be frank. Um, that's step one. Step two is like, well, step zero point five is like make sure you even have a product that needs to be widely distributed. Like that's a that's like the biggest step for all small businesses, especially craft products. Is like you just want to sell a couple hundred or something. That's all well and good. If you have ambitions of selling. 10,000 wallets of 10,000 bottles of wine. You gotta, you know, you gotta like do some work and research and see like, do people want this? Am I actually solving a problem? Am I adding value? You know, and if you're not, then the only way to solve that is with a shit ton of money. 
So I think just my advice would be very simple. It says, yeah, focus on getting credibility through trade partners. Try to make those trade partners move uh, as much as they can versus getting more and more trade partners at a weaker level. Um, and then I focus on like secondary brand partnerships that aren't trade-based, so not like bars and stuff. I say like what aligns with your, your beer or your wine. Uh, try to do partnerships with them because you're starting to then slowly introduce more and more people to it, getting more credibility from different sources. And then try to get some traditional PR. It makes a big difference, ironically. Um, I think you could just have those things for like a year or two and you, you'd be doing fine. What's uh, your stance on seltzers and spritzers? Obviously, they've started to come big, out of the woodwork. Big the passion, yeah. actually. Yeah, I mean, um, so fortunate to be involved as there are a lot of different consultants on like how seltzer within Australia through a certain multinational company um, as younger and was very privileged to like get to read a lot of data and look through and, and dream and build like a bunch of brands on paper and try to figure out how would a seltzer work in Australia before seltzer kicked off, like before white claws were here. And it was awesome for me because I was like big into the category. I'm like a big, I'm like always looking to America for uh, innovation leadership with, with uh, liquid and I'd seen what's going on there and I was just like, oh my God, this is, you know, makes sense. The rule is usually like whatever's going on in the States takes five years to get here. That's like the general innovation rule. And you think, oh, it's changed now, the internet. No, because companies are slow as they've always been. So you, you probably knew about white gold before you could buy it, I bet, through memes and YouTube and cool stuff and yeah. comedians dropping it. But you couldn't go to Coles and get it, right? Because 65-year-old dude that controls the shelf, you need to give a fuck about that. Yeah, right. That's crazy. So the culture is way ahead of the, the chains. Um, but anyway, so I got to work on that stuff. I, I think sales is a really awesome category. Um, I think there's a shit ton of garbage in the category because it was a hard race to fill the shelves up. Sure. And there was a bit of a like, you can make money with this on it. And supermarkets play a lot of dirty games too. They've got a lot of brands under their own thing. And, you know, like, there's all kinds of dirty tactics you can Google on how they, I guess, like lure customers in on maybe one brand and then all of a sudden had a very similar looking brand, had like a dollar cheaper, you know, like a lot of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I think overall it's a good thing. Like I, I, I love all the good innovation as long as people are enjoying it, it's bringing value, not seeing it stored or exploited. Um, I'm a fan of it. I'm a fan of challenging how to talk alcohol as well. So I'm into seltzer. Especially like super light seltzers. Ironically, the, the things I like the most are super light seltzers and super heavy seltzers and everything in between I think can, can piss off. But, you know, I think those are really interesting. So good. Yeah, is there one that you've had recently that you like or one you've had recently you really don't like? Shiraz Republic? I don't know. They stock it at the brewery. Oh, do you? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I but it's the... Um, I Back when I was blocking up everyone's Instagram stories, yeah. doing the beer reviews, yeah. what, 12 months ago, maybe mm-hmm. longer, the Tinto de Verano, the Shiraz spritzer. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's like Shiraz and Coke. It's... Tastes like a Portello. It's delicious. It's crazy. So glad. I love all that mixed category. Spritzers, coolers. I love shandies. Like, you could ask James about me and shandies and he'll, like, just put his head in his hands because I talk about shandies way too much. I'm like, God, shandy, you like it. It's like, no one wants a shandy. Everybody wants a shandy. They just don't know they want a shandy. Ah. I think it's wicked. I think people, 
Yeah, it's just like a lot of underserved markets and like. What about like a boiler maker? In a can? Oh, all mixed together? Mixed. Or like two parts. So James gave me a present of mm-hmm. ba ba some New Zealand brewery where you break the can yeah, in half and then. Oh. Yeah, so you've got can A, can B. I did see, I did uh, forget the brewery, but I've seen that online, yeah. That's a cool idea. Oh, 100%. Like the novelty. Um, I don't know how many of those you could actually consume and that goes back to the numbers. Like, is it profitable? Like one can's enjoyable, but I couldn't have a six pack at my neighbor's house. You know, like a bigger, a bigger blockage in, in a lot of cool products being made. Like I explored a similar product with a bunch of people for, um, like we've been brought in to discuss some innovation in our category. And we explored like a six pack where every can was like a mono flavor, a raspberry, a pineapple, a mango. And the idea was like the cans had a clever top on them so you could mix your drinks. So it's like, oh, if you just have mango, great. But why don't you do like 20% mango, 80% raspberry? Like, and everyone dug it, but at the end of the day, like, the reason I bring it up is um, cool ideas die a lot in boardrooms because they're not in a report, and that's, like, really stark. The culture is just so ahead of these companies. So, like, that is a great idea. I think a lot of people would love it. I'm not saying it would, like, change the world, but I'm sure plenty of people like If a big company did it, they can make a fortune. They've got the cash to spend on education. It's fine. Um, but if some marketing manager or brand director didn't see it in some, like, $25,000 innovation report that they purchased out of the States. They'd be like, I don't know. Do you think boards need to change and the directors sit on them? It's a big statement. Like, all boards are different. It's great boards, the ship boards, you know, it's a living structures. Um, you know, I shouldn't say generally in that first part, but like, all boards are different. You know, there's good and there's bad. Um, and a lot of, I would say like a lot of small, or should say small, but medium substances that scale really quickly need a, a really strong board that can guide them someone that you'd still be like uh, senior leadership right like not all do but a lot do you know and there's famous cases where that doesn't work like in apple in the mid 90s where uh like a really strong board strangled the business and it wasn't until the board relented control that the business got back on track financially but there's also plenty of other cases where like you've got a maniac founder who's just like way out of their depth and they struck gold and they really need like senior leadership to help them. Um, which I'm a big proponent of, especially with like startup innovation and incubators. Like a lot of people, you know, crazy success will ruin their business very quickly. Isn't it weird like talking on Apple House, Steve Jobs got uh, sacked in 1985 and through Next, he actually quit actually. Yeah. Really? Yeah, so like... Apple Apple fired Steve Jobs in 1985. He demanded to be fired. Really? Gotcha. Yeah, so like John Scully, if I'm correct, was the CEO, or or he might have been the board director. um, CEO. CEO, there you go. He he was ex-Pepsi, if I'm right, and had come across to be like the senior leadership for these kids who had struggled. Yeah. And Jobs had squandered innovation for a couple of years yes. and tossed it down and the company's on its last oh, legs financially. Obviously uh, bad launches. And I believe like the board had asked him to like step down from the board or whatever. Um, and Jobs, I believe, was like, you know, like fire me essentially. You know, like we can't do that. And then he gets forcibly fired under the request. And then the grand genius of the whole thing is that he leaves and starts next but he never has any real ambition for next to succeed. 
The goal was to build an Exynos company that Apple would acquire so he could come back in with a giant stock buyback. 12 years later for $400 million, 1997. And I believe most of that $400 million was in Apple stock. Really? So that he could, yeah, come back in with an even larger position. Gee whiz. Yeah, I, it's not 100% Apple stock, but I believe it was a like very large amount of Apple stock. And like the whole spiel is... That 1.5 million shares of Apple stock. Yeah, so he was able to come back in. And the cha- uh, the chairman and CEO of yeah. Next was given an advisory role to Apple. And the irony was the Next computer company never even made a function of their computer. Yeah, like they had this whole spiel about making super premium. I think it was like a $14,000 in 90s money education computer. And it was like, they sold like, like I think they sold like nine, like 20, and they didn't work. And the shit out, and people hated them. And it was like, but that was never the goal. It was just to, like, to go out there, build this PR, Steve Jobs, this big company. Make Apple look, embarrass Apple. Apple was embarrassed. Anyway, John Scully was a really bad product innovator. He was like the Newton and all these other failed Apple products that you can't even find now. Like they were fortunately there. And um, like he was trying to compete with like Palm Pilots and whatever was trending, he just tried to compete with. And uh, yeah, they got their last legs. Jobs comes in. And I believe the first product he releases is the new iMac. And which I think might have been the G4 iMac and just... Is that the one with the coloured background? I mean, the, sure. the, co- the coloured back, the desktop? For sure, that's the first one. Yeah. But that, I think that's the first one that he worked on. Um, the Johnny IF, that's the head designer. But yeah, it's a pretty remarkable story. Like, yeah, Jobs is a controversial figure, obviously, but yeah. Remarkable um, strategist, no doubt. Oh, yeah. A psycho. A <laughs> proper psycho. Like, not a good dude if you... We're psychos, though. Like, yeah, but he was a bad guy. You read his daughter's, any extra his daughter's uh, biography, he was a, he was a bad guy. I mean, Wasn't I mean, a good dad. Horrible dad, horrible friend, horrible everything, horrible son, horrible, horrible everything. <laughs> it's pretty sad how, like, people can become that. Like, the top 1%, it can go either way. People are hurting. That's it. Like, Jobs is hurting. He's given up as a child and that, like, haunts him his whole life. That he's, he didn't, couldn't figure out why his parents didn't want him. That's like the consensus from people that know him. That he just, I mean, Scully's account too, that he just had this. Uh, Isn't there a massive like segment of CEOs are psychopaths? I think that's a thing, yeah. I remember I read the psychopath test years ago by John Ronson, I think where that's, that comes from. And I forget the figure in there, but there is some stat, some estimated stat. Or I think it's actually, not, I think it's um, psychopaths and people who work on Wall Street or in. Uh, in investment banking it's like a combined stuff yeah gotcha but it's a really good book it's sure you'd, you'd love it it's filled with just like loony stories yeah what are we having now what, what is it ASMR is that what they what's ASMR that ASMR is so This rumination barrel aged mixed yes. culture ale with white peaches. Give us the go, man. You know, you know all about uh, cultures more than I do. Yeah, so I make starter cultures in a factory. It's pretty incredible. Oh, not really. I mean, to me, I think it's pretty wild. Like Eleven thousand liters of mesophilic cultures, which will be used in a batch of mozzarella heading yeah. to Korea. Love that. I love Korea. I was there for a while. So, it's. I think they just changed the parameters. I hope I don't get sacked for this. Mozzarella is really big in Korea. Yeah, but they change the um, pH and acidity mm-hmm. to meet their bland palate. They lower it? They lower it. Makes sense. You would have to anyway because uh, like I was in Korea for three months or so and 
Um, mozzarella is like in a bunch of shit, but um, Korean food is pretty acidic generally. So to then add even more acidic cheese, it would be pretty wild. So I think that would make sense to lower down a bit. Yeah. Chin chin. Chin chin. Yeah, I mean, right. Is it good? Mate, when you chin chin, you're meant to have to take a sip. What you do? I was thinking about cheese. Oh. Gosh, it's so unbelievably... Um, How would so you describe that? Well, I get like the first... I just have one sip, but the first thing I get off it is like a lot of... Like you suck on the pit of like an apricot or something like you It's quite the actual stone and stone fruit and it's quite peach skinny. I don't know what fruity sets in it, but I get a lot of like peach fuzz, peach skin. Yeah, white peach. I get heaps of skin, like almost not in a good way, but... Even the aromatics, I reckon it smells... It's like bang on the tannins in the skin of the peach for me. That is like... It really does smell it, it like It smells like... Peach. What do you smell? Maybe something different. No, no, like... When you're in the supermarket, you know how like you might smell a fruit to make sure it's good to go? Yeah, so you smell a fruit and they're all there. Bloody weird behavior. <laughs> just you know, licking avocados. Coming to the fun time. That's not bad. I don't mind that. Oh, that is really interesting. I think if I had a beer that tasted so faithfully like an actual ripe peach. Like it's not just like sweet peach. It's like that tastes like the flesh and the skin. Like a whole bite of a peach full of the tree. Yeah, that is really wild. That's impressive, and like that, deeds I think would be high fiving each other if they heard us discussing their drinks like this in a way. Uncanny, the wine drink is uncanny. It's crazy. It's the conversation piece. Yeah, absolutely. That's the first one. I'm a really big fan. So I reckon I rate this and that. The extravagance one, probably not so much. It's yummy, but it's pretty relaxed. Yeah. But I'm into it still. Um, wow. Four months out of fruiting, mate. Wow. That's awesome, man. Those guys have really uh, done great in the space. Right? Like, they're a great example of, like, how do you build a new luxury brand? Like, it's a low-key accessible luxury brand. You know, large format for you. It's not a Louis Vuitton bag, but, like, it's expensive. I mean, what are these costs? They were 30 bucks, I think. That's pretty incredible. But still, if someone that does not buy, you know, beer in a bottle or whatever, it's still like 30 fucking bucks. Oh, but still, like a four pack of the Mountain Culture, they were 11 bucks a can. Which is, well, I, I don't describe that price. I just mean, like, if you only drink. 40, 44 bucks for a four pack, you're going to question, hey, I can get a slab of Northern for. Well, we're not, but a guy is my slab of Northern. Exactly, but. It's, it's a luxury for him. It's, no it's an appreciation when you finish work and you want to try something new. Yeah. Read the back of the can and actually appreciate the, the effort that's gone into yeah. a limited re, limited edition release. Um, I'd love to hear your take on limited releases, actually. Because you're, you're a big consumer. Well, I'd love to know. In my world, this thing called like line extensions, right? Obviously, in your world, too, but like, especially in. Um, craft liquor and, and beer and like that or even just actual luxury goods and line extensions are a really easy way to build right quickly so yeah it's like you see that through Dayton massively Dayton's famously done it and yeah. in a non-beer way that I think people will just recognize from chopping in coals is like Oreo and like there's like a new weird Oreo every 30 days and that's a deliberate show it's just the kids you know it's, it's not the kids really no no it's not the kids at all it's just the cheapest form of the billboard it's like how much shelf can I take up yeah, so right with Oreos it doesn't matter if you buy one or not because what Oreo found the report shows 
And they did limited crazy flavors. They could do any, it could be pond water Oreo flavor, it doesn't matter, right? It would be a four or five percent increase on sales on limited sales, so like all the weed Oreos. But then the movement on the core range of Oreos is 20 to 30 percent annually, right? Which for a heritage scale FMCQ brand is unheard of. We're talking like single digit growth on a successful big brand, So that licensure model has become infamous and popular now because it's so effective. Cadbury's another great example in Australia, right? So many Cadbury releases in there. Like, it's just, and it's all part of the Vegemite Cadbury. Yeah, it's under the um, Arnott's banner as well, the yeah. likes of shapes. Yeah, because if you can get even 10% growth a year on a core range by releasing weird shit and getting bars and getting chat, and even if you have to burn 80% of that with limited releases, which is not yeah. what we want, that's sustainable. But if that's, that might be their horrible method, they're, they're like, fuck yeah. We could never get that through billboards and NPR or traditional PR. So it's just an interesting thing. So in beer, that's why I bring it back. It's like, uh, like I said, Dayton and a lot of other brewers that do like an overwhelming amount of releases. And I, and I don't say in a bad way, it's exciting. Like I'm curious, like, because you brought saturation as well. Do you feel fatigue from the amount of releases in the market? Uh, not particularly. Um, you, you do when there's, you do when a brewery uh, releases limited beers, you know, every so often, but they can't execute, execute their core skew range. That's why you try and innovate new things when you can't execute the core range. I'll be controversial and say I don't, and I don't I'm selling I don't even know what Dayton's core range is. Oh, I, I couldn't tell you. I bought the... Uh, I know, we, we, we did a beer review with the boys at Maud Street before they were leaving. Um, I think I bought 24 <laughs> different, different beers. Different Dayton's. They, they filled a slab, yeah. Um, yeah, good fun. It is good fun. <laughs> but it, there were some that were like, oh, yeah, this tastes like maple syrup pancakes. Yeah, yeah. But... It's when, a novelty to drink one can. Well, when it's too far for you. If a beer just tastes like a peanut butter and a jam sandwich, like, but it doesn't taste like beer at all, so you're... Oh, there's a lot of things that come in. So I did a just bunch of... flavor and you only get any beer. Are you like, I don't want it? I want it to be like beer? I, I did a few Palling Bros. I'm almost done reviewing their beers. So I'm up to beer review 39 for them. <laughs> <laughs> but oh no so sorry uh out of theirs i think there were nine or ten skews of theirs still but um little things like the carbonation mm. so it looks good in the photo once i pour it into the glass yeah. Yeah. but if it tastes flat like yeah. yeah it's the biggest disappointment just just little little things you know yeah. uh their golden ale tastes like a bloody mimosa yeah uh they're their buried sour tastes like a, a morning smoothie. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I don't feel guilty drinking that at six o'clock in the morning <laughs> after <work>. night shift. <laughs> after <laughs> night shift, because I feel like I'm doing my body something good before I go to bed. Well, you know, what I, like Put just, in the yeah, bed. bro, just just little, just little things. Um, That's good. But you know, the Nipa didn't have a full body. Uh, their lager missed the mark that far like it tasted like a chardonnay yeah yeah yeah. you know a lager shouldn't taste that acidic yeah yes. just just wow. yes wow. It just little things like that but they're smoked 
Hella? Hella? Hellas? Yes. H E double L E. Oh, yeah. Hella? Hella? Subtle smokiness from Beechwood smoked malt. It was a conversation started this really? year. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. And it, it eased off into like a full body yeah, lager. Like, wow. And I know the Germans don't want to hear that, but it, it was an enjoyable beer, but it was just, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They probably, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a great conversation because like a lot of what you just said crosses over into like that thing we touched on earlier, which is like value-centric, right, and delivering value. And like in whiskey, in the gym, this is a huge conversation as well, but it's a hard one to have in the industry because it's really hard to make good whiskey. It's it's very hard to make good spirits in general. If it's hard to make beer, it is a hundred times harder to make good spirits. Uh, some people say like, you know, whiskey's where beer goes to grow up, you know what I mean? Like it's just this bigger, badder, more fucking ter- ter- terrifying process. <laughs> like you just, you finish making a beer deal and you're like, all right, we can do it all again, but way harder. Um, it's brutal. And then add years and years onto it and all this stuff. But the reason I bring it all up is the whiskey industry in Australia, for instance, is booming. There's a lot of uh, small micro distillers and whatever. And I can say confidently, but not to, to bring anyone down, a lot of the whiskey in the market isn't great. Um, a lot of it is really great. But it's it's an 80-20 game. And I'm sure the 80% that don't taste amazing right now, over time, will get way better. Because we it's a maturing industry and it's knowledge that's being passed around and passed on and figured out. Um, but sales of limited casks and whatever, you know, that's yeah. ravenous at the moment. And pretty high price points. If people think a $70 beer is adventurous and spooky, people are buying $500 bottles, $500 bottles of whiskey from distillers that have been only doing it for two years, you know what I mean? And that's, for me, real spooky when it comes to where you throw your cash around. Um, but... The only reason I bring it all up is like, so whether that's fatigue and like the nature of releases and then quality versus just like accessibility and like, I don't know what the point is. It's just an interesting, interesting time. And I respect, like the brilliant you just said, they really nailed the need for and the lager plus all the wild stuff. It'd be really hard to tear that through it down. You'd be like, God damn, you are just a freak, aren't you? Because you're nailing stuff that's hard and takes time and patience. But you're also nailing like the big fun bombastic yeah, there, there was one. I'll read. Uh, so, Beer Review 34, Palling Bros. One Fell Scoop Ice Cream IPA, full bodied oat cream IPA with hints of vanilla and fresh fruit. Wow. This is my feedback. So, this will be out in a few days, but I wrote, fuck yes. My inner fat child is barring up as he enjoys his third rainbow paddle pop at the public swimming pool. Craft breweries, take note. A sweet oat ice cream IPA that brings back positive memories in a childhood full of trauma. Beat that. I'm going to buy this for others. Do you? Like... You're a good little, you're a good writer now. Oh, only when I'm drunk. Oh, like, I, I was six beers in at this stage, but... God, that's six beers. You can get ten in this. Yeah. Oh, no. You're like a bloody war on peace. But, yeah, it's, it's good fun, and, like, it's probably why I started the podcast, sort of create a bit of a community um, and just put something positive out there in a space full of negative opinions that bring others down. Oh man, I got chills when you said that. Because yeah. uh, 
you know, haven't been involved in these different businesses over the years and in a digital, non-digital role, but always in a role where I have to keep my heart consumer, consumer sentiment. You know, there is a lot of negativity in the communities that we run in, whether it be craft whiskey or craft beer. There might be, like, for instance, whiskey, there's a group called AWOS, Australian Whiskey Association. And, uh, I don't know, like 20,000 people on Facebook. It's a private group. And all these dudes in there, they, they buy every limited release, they discuss it, they've got big collections, and that's great. They're the connoisseur market of all this effort that we put into. But I would say the sentiment in that group is 95% like horribly negative. And I would say 95% of it isn't attached to reality. It's just like insane negative. I don't know, it's just like gossipy negativity. Just on that too, yeah. I uh, played a bit of poker up in Albury as a massive competition and mm. obviously with the two-hour drive, I thought, uh, I'll put a podcast on Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson. Mm. Jordan Peterson openly admits that it's the only podcast that he's been like 100%, like not sick, no illness. And they spoke on some pretty big things. So obviously, uh, Trudeau uh, is trying to give him the flick outside of uh, the Canadian colleges uh, based purely on the opinions that he has. Now, both uh, Joe and Jordan Peterson are polarising figures. Uh, They argue that 99.5% of interactions publicly are positive, yet 60 to 70% online are negative. Now, is it that keyboard warrior mentality where people feel the need to share their opinion? Or oh, uh, I, I, I think it's a complicated issue. It's like that food critic mentality. It's like you can only punch down. I think that's a really great point is that especially fine dining and reviewing food and same film or anything like that, there's a very easy way to get brownie points, which is to be a critic, right? And it's also much easier to be a critic. Right? It's easy to be entertaining at that in whatever field you're talking about, no doubt. But then secondly, the keyboard worry thing, like I just don't really buy into any of this discourse on like um, separatism and, and, uh, and all of this online. But I do think that like it's well proven that it's 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 easier to up up and, and get loud online, no doubt, right? Because it's consequences are reduced, this is reduced. And that can lead to like a crappy social environment, like obviously. Um, but when it comes down to like what, what do we do with all that I, I just I don't think the conversation is as large as everyone makes it out to be like I just I don't know people are negative online absolutely are they more negative in person probably most certainly does it matter that much probably not like why are we talking about it so much you know what I mean like I almost feel like we're the fool by letting it letting it become this big conversation it's like well we're the real loser aren't we yeah you know what I mean? But that's a good point. And also, what happens to the mentality of like, if you don't like it, leave a little bit. Like, you know, if you yeah. fucking hate being on Twitter and you're, or you're angry at whatever discourse is going on, any, any platform, I think you can find every community. Like, you don't have to find every community. You can't try to figure it out, of course, have discourse. But if, if it's not working, it's like real life, isn't it? If you're in the pub and you and another guy have a fucking altercation, Pretty sure you two will just get away from each other, yeah? Yeah, just leave. Someone leave. It's yeah. a battle you punch on, and I don't think most people want to punch on, right? No, nah, no one really likes conflict, really. Like, That's what I mean. So, they, yeah, there's probably that 2% of the population that drag their knuckles, sort of. Yeah, there's some real, I don't know, 
odd decisions from a couple of divisions, but like, I don't know, the whole online discourse thing, I, especially having come from a social media background at the beginning of my career startups and selling and direct consumer stuff, which was like, I drove all that growth early on through social platforms and I, I ran a lot of Facebook, scale Facebook ads for a long time. Um, you know, like, you just realize that, no, this world is not even real, like, it's just, and I, I don't even give credit to it, like, you know, there's, and, and if you do leave credit, give credit to it, I think you're, you're wasting your own brain space in a way, like, it, it would surely be difficult as a celebrity to have to face that criticism at a much grander scale, um, but also, man, it's like, you're a celebrity, it's like, well, come on, it's part of the PD, isn't it, like, that's it, you know, yeah, you can't be mad at the guy that works at McDonald's. We have a go with you on Twitter when you've got 200 yeah, million likes. Yeah, it's good fun. Uh, it's like, Where would we be without Kanye? It's probably... It's a grand disappointment in culture. In the, in, yeah, who would have thought that somebody could outdo... Uh, I mean, I don't want to say other names, but yeah, but what is it? it's a disappointment, isn't it? It's good. Love it, mate. Well, mate, we've been going for an hour and a half. Have we? Yeah. That's pretty good. Hey, this has been fucking Mickey Mouse, so... And then left, you got a speed round or anything else uh, So, generally, obviously, at the start of most uh, podcasts, I like to ask, you know, what we're drinking, which we've covered. Yeah, yeah. Did you bring a joke with you? Oh, gosh, I'm probably the least funny guy you could find. Um, no, I don't... I think I would... I don't think I could even bring myself in mind. I'd have to get out a spreadsheet to make you a joke. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't get ChatGPT to write me a joke. Yeah, I don't have any jokes. I'm still sort of coming off my loss at Raw. Um, I had a pretty good set. Is it a loss or is it just a I, loss? I, I, I got it recorded. Um, yeah. I can't post the visual because it falls under Raw's banner, so they don't like people using them as promotional. But you get a lot of activities and people. Oh, 100%. Like, I've got a paid gig next month. That's incredible. Yeah, so, yeah. How long has this journey been so far? This the comedy journey? 12 months. So, to go 12 months and you've got a paid gig, that's pretty... Yeah, I'm pretty happy about it. It's pretty amazing. I wouldn't even know how to, how to get that. <laughs> so, the judge who organised the paid gig said, look, uh, the people in the audience were, like, quite old, like that. Bendigo, matured, gotcha. don't talk about certain things. Right. Yeah, and, and I hit those things. And I thought, honestly, my second set, the second half of my set was probably the best, and yet it flopped big time. Um, I'll have to show you off air. Ah, send it to me. But, um, yeah, it, it was good fun. Um, but yeah, pretty keen just this year, like 2023, just... You know, do the podcast, do the beer reviews, the poker, the the comedy. Definitely. Obviously, see what you do over in England. I know that we can't really talk much about. Uh, I'll speak a little about yeah, one part of it, uh, if you'd like. Uh, yeah, that'd be that would be great, honestly. Uh, I'm going for like a, a fair bit of client work, which would be exciting, which I can't get super into. But I'm also uh, exploring launching a new. I started a startup last year. Yeah, and then uh, off the back of that, I've been spent about twelve months. Uh, so I'm just thinking, you know, what do I do next? Because you know, that startup sold prematurely, and I was a bit like, oh, gosh, like, thought I'd be doing this for a lot longer. Uh, so I'm blessed to sell something pre-launch, which is like awesome to sell just IP and strategy. Uh, but off that, you know, I've sort of had 12 months to remain. I'm like, oh, well, you know, what do I want to do now? And um, a part of that is to do it in England, and uh, there's a, a new startup I'm going to go on today, which is you know, pretty daunting. Uh, luxury goods category, 
which won't be liquor. Uh, I still do a lot of work in liquor, a lot of the client stuff I'm doing there is in liquor, but um, I think trying to figure out how we can democratize perfume is like the, uh, I think I should let you score. I can always go to the bathroom. Let's just pause it here for a yeah, second, champions. Right. I'll speak up. <laughs> Jackson has. Yeah, uh, I was not finding my time to mention Jackson. He was squirming and busting away in a chair. It's tempted to just keep rattling off information, see if he'll burst. Um, but in the nature of being kind, I'll just continue my my uh, little chat that I was saying, which is I am living in England, which uh, I don't know if you listen, but it's probably a little concern to them. But uh, one of the startups think that one of the startups I'm exploring. Well, launching there is uh, in democratizing perfume uh, in a unisex fashion. So, you know, in the last couple of years, we've had a, a lot of success in brands like the Labo and with obviously Tom Ford's New York Rise in perfume and Barrio um, uh, and stuff like that. Oh, someone's returned to their own podcast. Oh, you're a bad man. <laughs> oh, you're a so bad welcome man. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome to Jack's uh, beer reviews. <laughs> <laughs> I am Oh my god! An hour and a half's not too bad, considering what we've knocked back. Be nine more hours, and it me Really? Out. Yes. Gee, man. Nah, anyways, you didn't miss much. I was just saying, perfume's a, a big area I'm exploring, and how we can democratize that. And uh, you know, because I think having I won't go into it forever because we've done an hour and a half, but like, booze is really personal, as I said, and people get really attached, and it's a ritual product, and I think that's naturally led me to like, well. Perfume is like it's just a smaller bottle with less liquid at a higher margin and it's even more personal and even harder to say. Outside of Million, is mm. there any other, and Jupe for mm. teenagers, mm. is there really any other sort of cologne that, oh, yeah. oh mate, I, need I mean, the last couple of years has been so Maybe that's why I'm fucking single. I need to shake up a shit. big brand that just sold for a billion and a bit and that was a craft perfume brand. Gee whiz. The uh, Labo famously sold for stupidly cheap only tens of millions but it's now a multi-billion dollar craft perfume brand you've just brought up a bit of a core memory that I had my first job outside of the factory Mm -hmm. Um, I worked at Bendigo Bank whilst finishing my business degree Mm -hmm. and I had a gentleman come in to do an international payment Mm -hmm. to purchase a cologne from Italy that's Mm -hmm. made with flower petals yeah interesting and this was back in 2016 into it. Well, a lot of the heritage houses are uh, made that way. It's pretty, it's pretty exclusive. Like uh, Chanel is a good example of a house that still uses real petals, like extracts from real petals, and it's continuing it a great piece from the times where like follows the process. It's intense, isn't it? Like a forty-hour window every year to harvest all these rose petals, and then to get from the farm to this joint where this dude's squashing down and extract stuff, and it's like it's crazy stressful. And the same family that's done it for like seventy-five years is still doing it. Not, it's not a big factory. Dudes with like wooden paddles and baskets, it's crazy for completely one of the largest scale luxury brands, right? But that's rare, that's super rare, like that's just unbelievably unusual behavior. But that's a great example of a luxury brand retaining the craft. Um, But no, I think, like, in general, it's an exciting category and it's underserved. Like, you know, there's no reason you or any other bloke should have access to just like another thing that makes you feel good, you know what I mean? It's just that simple. You know, you have a nice beard, you want to have a nice steak, you want to have nice shoes on your feet, you have nice threads on your body, which fucking smell good too. It's like, hey, this this is perfect for a Valentine's episode, which it, it'll, it'll be dropping 14th of Feb, so. Well, uh, we're both single, so uh, 
someone's looking for triple one deal, yeah. we don't come together. So, not the way I said it. Either. Not like that. <laughs> we definitely don't come together. Sure. All right, Jacko. Well, I think if I keep talking, I'm gonna probably uh, get called by ASIC to go to jail. So, where can listeners uh, follow your journey or, or see more of you, mate? Is there a bit of a plug there? There's not really a bit of a plug. Like, if you work in the industry, I'm easy to find. Um, if you don't, just under Jack Hawkins. You can Google me. Yeah, come on, you can just Google me. Google me, baby. I hate to say it, but not in like arrogant way. It's like that's yeah, no, no. There's a website, but it's very client facing. Um, I've got a very findable email. If anybody ever wants to chat, I'm actually like totally. If anybody ever wants to just chat about anything discussed today, I'm an open book, and I'm always happy to hear anybody's cool ideas or even someone like how the hell I do something. I'm uh, being into passing anything on. Like I, I've been fortunate and blessed to. Uh, been privileged enough to like have mentors who open doors to me and open just information doors to me. And if anybody listens to this and has any questions, I'm happy to get on the phone anytime. Thank Beautiful. Cool, mate. Awesome. Chin Thanks, chin. mate. Chin chin. You have a sign off? You, you must clink it, right? Just, split, just the kiss. <laughs> <laughs>
Just brought up a bit of a core memory that I had my first job outside of the factory. Um, I worked at Bendigo Bank whilst finishing my business degree. And I had a gentleman come in to do an international payment Mm -hmm. to purchase a cologne from Italy that's Mm. made with flower petals. Yeah. And this was back in 2016. Do you remember it? It wasn't Naked Cargo's um, Rosé. It's pretty... It was like uh, Chanel is a big one here in Massachusetts City that uses really good petals. It's one of your great piece um, times, but then it's all in the it's you can put it on a 40 ml unit, it gives you absolutely 